Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. entered another cold snap here in the southeast of England. A few days ago, it was actually looking as though it might be warm enough to get out into the garden and do a spot of tidying up. My image of how this is going to be is always rather different to the real experience of muddy knees and soil-encrusted fingernails. In my imagination, I'm always delicately deadheading roses while wearing a very large sun hat and, of course, carrying a hand-woven basket. Welcome to the seventh Dying Arts episode of the Three Ravens podcast, a series all about heritage crafts and forgotten arts. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm off to market with a wicker basket full of still warm, freshly laid eggs over my arm and I'm inviting my co-host Martin Vaux to take a look inside. Hello and what a very nice basket. Now, while I would hesitate to actively call Eleanor a basket case on a recording, it's certainly true that she does like them an awful lot. I do. Perhaps it's their vessel-like quality, <laughs> or the way they make me feel like Little Red Riding Hood off to visit Grandma in the woods whenever I carry one, but baskets definitely have a special appeal for me. Yep, and, you know, with the wild garlic coming up, you will soon go out and gather a load of wild garlic in your basket. brass scissors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Eleanor, I've got to raise something. Just looking around this room we're sitting in, I can see one, two... I can see multiple baskets. Can they possibly qualify as a dying art when we are surrounded by baskets? Basket making is 100% a traditional craft. It's actually widely believed to be the oldest craft in the world. And basket making is certainly on the Radcliffe list of endangered crafts. But you're right. 
it isn't endangered. Oh. Basket making is very much in the green category, making it a currently viable craft. Well, huzzah! Is that our first viable craft in this series? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Although it's worth saying that Heritage Crafts did publish a separate report in 2020 about endangered baskets and heritage basketry techniques. Makes them sound like a wild animal. <laughs> endangered baskets. We have to look after the endangered oh, we baskets. we do. So I, I don't think the humble basket is completely safe in our fast-moving modern world. Oh, no. But... You're right. This is dying arts after all. So I've also decided to include traditional trug making in this episode, which is a critically endangered art. And let's be honest, aren't trugs just a form of basket? Martin, how could you? (laughs) They are wildly different. Okay, Eleanor, if you say so. But they are both vessels made from natural materials like, I don't know, wood. They also have, like, loopy handles. They are not the same at all, and I shall prove it. Uh Uh-oh, the Trug champion has accepted my challenge. I shall take up my withy sword with pride. (laughs) So you said just a minute ago that basketry might be the oldest craft in the world. That's quite an amazing claim. What do we know about the earliest baskets? One of the earliest complete baskets which has been discovered is actually from around 3000 BC, which is quite astonishing when you consider that baskets are made from natural materials like willow, bamboo, straw, leaves, rush, brambles, bark, depending on what was readily available in your particular surroundings. Mm. It's widely thought that the interlacing of twigs of some sort into basket work is older even than the weaving of cloth. Really? And that particular craft has had so many varied uses over the centuries, not just the making of baskets like the ones we use today and are indeed surrounded by. (laughs) So so can anything which involves the weaving of natural fibres be considered basketry of some sort? Like, I'm thinking, for example, of early boats. The Romans had coracles, didn't they, which were basically large floating baskets. Yes, totally. And if you think of wattle and daub structures, Mm. a building style which was used right up into the 1700s, those are basket weaving skills at work, aren't they? Okay. We know, though, that baskets were used even before other materials. So, for example, imprints discovered on pieces of Neolithic pottery show us that they were probably sculpted around basket moulds. So long before the invention of the potter's wheel, they'd be using baskets. That's insane and so interesting. Oh, it's wild to me that some of these really early baskets, from what you're saying, survive. Like, how is it that they haven't rotted? Well, the oldest extant examples have been found in Egypt because of the heat and dryness of the atmosphere, particularly sand, which has helped to keep them in a good state of preservation. Interestingly, the worshipful company of basket makers... hold on, wait. Let me guess, is this another worshipful company which has no actual basket makers on its books? No, I think they actually do have some. Oh, yeah, you think. <laughs> but something else they have in their collection is an Egyptian shabti basket from around 2000 BC. Okay, shabti, I think, are those dolls which people were buried with to serve them in the afterlife. Like we talked about those in the Puppets episode. Yeah, that's right. And the shabti baskets were intended to hold food for the shabti dolls. Oh, my God, that's so cute. Cute. Got to be well supplied in the afterlife, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, adorable. They gave the little dolls little lunch pails. Oh. <laughs> but I suppose it just shows how absolute a part of life baskets were. I mean, oh. they were literally used for everything. 
carrying items, storing, fishing, transporting. Yeah. So it stands to reason you'd need baskets for your spirit dolls to carry their afterlife <laughs> picnic foods. Of course, naturally. It only makes sense. <laughs> Every village would have likely had local basket makers. And actually, Britain was known for its excellent basketry as early as the Roman invasion, mm-hmm. with British baskets actually being exported to Rome. Well, we could do with a revival of basket making today from the sounds of it. Britain needs all the exports it can get. <laughs> well, your end, Somerset, was actually vital to the historic basket industry because of its wetlands where willow beds were grown. Okay. Willow was extremely popular for baskets, although we know that oak and hazel were used too. Mm. And Somerset remained a really important centre for the basket craft, even right through the Industrial Revolution. That's so interesting. And when it comes to willow, I mean, you and I, we've tried to do a little bit of basket making ourselves, haven't we? Weaving things together. And willow is really good for it. Some woods, not so easy to do. No, some woods, not so easy to do, like that hawthorn. <laughs> yes, that was a <laughs> When we tried to make the hawthorn witch ball. Yeah. A great error. Not one of our finest very moments. Very <laughs> hard to make. Anyway, so how did the Industrial Revolution affect the craft? Because... I imagine all sorts of crafty basket-making machines started to be invented, but I can't think of ever having well, seen one. Not really, actually. Willow production and basketry actually boomed in the Industrial Revolution, cool. with over 3,000 acres of willow being planted in Somerset. What? And there were a great number of craftspeople there as well. I mean, even once willow had been harvested, it still had to be stripped by hand. Far from whizzy machines taking over, the first willow stripping machine wasn't seen in England until the 20th century between the wars. Kind of amazing, isn't mm, it? Because yeah. I guess it was such a difficult thing to do without breaking the willow. You couldn't shove things into a machine. That's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And there are so many associated jobs around the industry from willow growers to willow merchants. And then, of course, the actual artisans who did the making of baskets. Oh, good old Somerset, I have mm-hmm. to say. Because, of course, when we think about Alfred the Great, he went and hid in those marshes all that time ago, which kind of saved England or helped to invent England. You know, back yeah. in our early history. Well, absolutely. Well, I've got a lot to thank Somerset for, not just its baskets. <laughs> and in terms of the actual making, are there lots of different actual construction methods for putting baskets together? Well, like Deadly Sins and Wonders of the World, there are seven. Oh, okay. Looping, knotting, plaiting, coiling, weaving, twining and assembly, right. which are recognised as the defining characteristics of the craft. But there are other associated crafts and types of regional basket work items which utilise some of the same skills. Mm-hmm. For example, things like withy pots, bee skeps, swill baskets, chair seating, stave basket making, and of course, trug making, which we're going to talk about as well. Yeah, to paraphrase the gangster rappers of West Coast, California, trug life, baby. <laughs> so, uh, also, eel catching, like, that involves weaving, doesn't it? Also uh, yeah, in a similar way, like making baskets. and eel pots would yeah. have been basket work, absolutely. Oh, there's actually lots of different kinds of baskets. I feel like I'm having revelations every minute here. Okay, I'm taking from all this that while basket making itself is still a viable craft, perhaps some of the traditional skills and techniques have maybe fallen out of use? That's exactly right. So the Endangered Baskets report, which we were talking about, discusses the challenges that heritage basketry techniques face and the importance of studying traditional skills in the area to better understand things like historic growing practices, Mm. harvesting and so forth. And it also talks about baskets as objects of social connection. What? 
Well, because they were so deeply embedded in culture, they naturally have things to teach us about traditions, experiences, and social rituals. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true of like most crafts, isn't it? It brings people together. Well, exactly. And there's also an incredible number of local variations of which knowledge is now extremely patchy. A bit like corn maidens or corn dolls, I suppose. Yes. I mean, where else but the endangered basketry report might you find the wire forest whisket or the Penclaweth cockle basket or indeed the New Haven fishwives back creel after all. Well, indeed. I mean, the endangered basket report does make it sound a little bit like panda bears or something, doesn't it? It's we need a very to interesting read. Like a basket reserve where they can go and breed. I think that's Somerset. <laughs> <laughs> Despite being considered currently viable, though, the industry has obviously declined since the heyday of Somerset willow growing for basketry and since the introduction of widely available plastics in the 1950s, <sighs> things have definitely suffered. So is plastic the enemy of the basket industry? I mean, I would suggest that plastic is the enemy of life on Earth in many ways. That's right, yeah. Oh. I mean, it's obviously much cheaper than growing and preparing willow for basketry basket weaving <sighs> uh, but of course it's not biodegradable yeah. unlike traditional baskets which can be used until they fall apart and then will gradually turn into compost that's it i mean you say plastic is cheaper but not in the long run because the, the consequences and costs of all the plastic we put into the environment are deadly and awful and yeah not cheap for the planet <laughs> no and not cheap for healthcare systems for example well no exactly like we're all ingesting plastic all the time it's making us iller oh it's all a bit scary Anyway, so you say the industry has declined. We've got this endangered baskets report. Do we have any statistics to demonstrate what has actually happened to the basket making industry since this rise in evil, evil plastic? Well, to give you an idea of numbers, there were 14,000 professional basket makers recorded in 1891. Yeah. And there were still over 5,000 in the 1930s. Right. But now it's probably only about 200. Oh my goodness, that's such an awful drop. So well, it's quite tragic. 14,000 to 5,000. Mm -hmm. So there's like a third of them left half a century later and then today that has gone down to you know just a few dozen that is really awful yeah and i mean i think that was one of the reasons for producing that report yeah. because if you're using that as a scale of percentage it's going to drop by think what it's going to be like in the next 50 years 100 years well we're going to rally around this everyone we're going yeah, to start we're going to baskets. making baskets <laughs> must be done but, I mean, you said that Trugs were actually on the red list. So the story of Trugs must be even more tragic if they are critically endangered. Well, I like to think the narrative has a small spark of hope, especially as trug making these days is a local enterprise to us here in Sussex. It is. In fact, we should really be referring to Trugs as Sussex Trugs, as that is the official name for them. And just to be clear, what exactly is a trug and how is it different to a basket? Well, it is a basket in function, yeah. but it's made differently. Mm -hmm. So it's made of cleft willow for the body and coppiced sweet chestnut for the frame. Okay. And the trug is not woven like a basket. It's made from between five and seven, always an odd number, thin willow boards fastened together with nails or tacks. And they have a frame and a rim and a handle. And some even have sweet little feet underneath to help them stand up as they tend, although not always, to be oval in shape. Yes, I mean, I think the best way to describe them is a bit like old boats. You know, when we mm. think about how boats yeah. used to be made right up into the English Renaissance, it was planks that were nailed together, overlapping one another in that kind of cupped yeah. 
shape. They are very similar to those boats. They come in 10 standard sizes. So you can have a number one trug, which is a very little, short, Eleanor-sized trug, right up to a number 10 trug, which is a much taller Martin-sized trug. So we know trugs come from our ends in Sussex, but I mean, I'm presuming they were a little bit more widespread. Like they, they can't have originated here. Well, trucks are first documented as early as the 13th century and most likely had some sort of agricultural use. Yeah. The materials used in the truck, though, are specific to Sussex. So chestnut trees are widely coppiced locally, for example, since they were introduced by the Romans into southern England. Right, okay. So it's a Spanish variety, but yeah. it was introduced specifically here and the willow used is also a specific species of willow it's salix cerulea also known as cricket bat willow because it's used in the production of you guessed it golf clubs (laughs) (laughs) loads (laughs) Loads of it grows on the edges of the pevensey marshes where hurstman zoo is situated and that hurstman zoo is where a man called thomas smith established a highly successful drug company in the 19th century see you know slight diversion but i mean when you have like carpenters or other tradesmen going out and carrying their tools, some might call that a toolbox, but if it's open topped, then the official name for it is a trug. Yes, isn't it? I use a, a, a very kind of functional plastic toolbox thing for my hair and makeup supplies, and I call it my trug. Yeah, so but it's not a it's not a Sussex it, trug. It's not a Sussex trug, and it's not necessarily made out of wood. No, it's not. So again, plastic. The enemy (laughs) still we've driven past signs for the sussex trug company any number of times haven't we is that the one that thomas smith established in the 19th century yes it is and it's still going today cool thomas smith essentially did a redesign of the ancient trog which is an old english word referring to a wooden vessel which might have been a container or might have even been another word for a type of boat right. as you say yep. so from the 13th century trugs or trogs were actually used as measures uh, because they came in different sizes Ooh. so farmers could weigh out different liquids and grains much like we do when we use cups to make a cake today yeah, of course. but they were extremely heavy traditionally until thomas smith's sleek modern redesign <laughs> sleek modern redesign mm-hmm. i love that you have applied that phrase Well, there was still a general market for Thomas's trugs among farmers and gardeners, but Thomas Smith was the trug maker with big dreams. Of course he was, yeah. In 1851, he had a stand at the Great Exhibition at the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park and showed off his trugs to the world. No way! He went to the Great Mm -hmm. Exhibition. With his trugs. That is so ambitious because, of course, that was a place for, like, new innovations and machines and engines. Well, Thomas thought that his trug redesign stood up to all of those new innovations and away he went and i have to ask like did it i mean did the world enjoy trucks the world did oh, at least queen victoria <laughs> certainly did of course. to all reports she was incredibly impressed by thomas's trucks and ordered some as gifts for her family well that's nice well the story gets even more heartwarming because thomas smith then returned to his workshop at hersman zoo and was so determined to do a good job for queen victoria that he made the trucks she'd ordered entirely by himself then loaded them into a handcart and walked all the way to buckingham palace from hersman zoo it's about six 
60 miles oh to deliver goodness. them by hand. By hand card? Mm-hmm. He literally wheeled them person, made them personally and took them bespoke yeah, to the Queen. because he wanted them to arrive in perfect condition and he didn't trust oh. anybody else. But the Queen was so pleased with the trugs and presumably with Thomas's single-minded dedication that she awarded him a royal warrant, a gold medal and a certificate of merit from the Great Exhibition. Wow, well done, Thomas. But the starry trajectory of Thomas Smith, trug maker to the royals, didn't end there. Oh no, was he on the climb? Was he ascending to the stars? He was. Was he in- going to capture them in a trunk? <laughs> well, in 1855, he was exhibiting them again, this time at the Exposition Universelle Industrie Beaux-Arts in Paris, what? where he took home, alas, only a silver medal this time, but he also got a certificate of merit from Napoleon Bonaparte III. Okay. <laughs> and uh, with these accolades behind him, the Royal Sussex Trug Company flourished and continued to produce trucks right through the increased mechanisation of the 20th century. And while their popularity has declined somewhat since those heady days, there are still three companies producing traditional Sussex trucks today, one of which is Thomas Smith. Wow. So I'm going to guess the reason for the decline is similar to baskets then. Is it all down to plastic and dwindling numbers of people able to practice this traditional technique. Yeah, that is a problem. But another key issue facing trugs today is that of the cheap imitation. Oh, no. Mass produced in factories rather than handmade in small batches. Mm. Cheap copies have flooded the world trug market and consumers might not necessarily be aware of the differences between a genuine and an imitation trug. I've got to say, I love the idea that there is an international trug market. There absolutely <laughs> is look it up you can buy them on aliexpress oh it's horrifying goodness, do not do that yeah. <laughs> but there's also a bit of a problem with the raw materials mm. as well i mean truck making is kind of sustainable in that it uses offcuts from cricket bat making oh really uh, yeah yeah so cricket bat willow is actually used to make cricket bats but the offcuts are given to the truck makers uh, to use to make uh, the frame of the trucks. So does that mean that then you're limited to make trucks by the number of cricket bats that are being made? Um, not exclusively, but sure. it definitely has something to do with it. Okay. So it's sort of it's local reciprocity um, mm. within those two industries. And um, but actually, round here, there's there's been a downscaling of chestnut coppicing activities, which means like uh, there there aren't as many people coppicing chestnuts. So there's just not as many supplies readily available. Oh, blimey. Okay, Eleanor, I've got one question. Burning a hole in my pocket, which I'm hoping you'll be able to answer for me. What is it? Well, I've been wondering about the origin of the term basket case. I mentioned it at the top of the episode, but I'm wondering, does it actually have anything to do with basketry? I will tell you all about it. And I will also go rootling around into the forests of folklore to discover baskets in traditional tales right after this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Right, Eleanor, you promised me an answer. Where on earth does the term basket case come from? And... Have we been misusing it for years? Well, I think we may have been. (laughs) I have always thought it referred to being mentally unwell or a little unhinged. But the Oxford English Dictionary corrected me, as it often does. It's military slang, which originates from America in World War One, and supposedly referred to soldiers who were so injured in the war that they'd lost all four limbs and thus needed to be carried around in baskets. Oh, my goodness. Because I've seen, you know, people use baskets for coffins, for example. Yeah, uh, willow coffins are actually quite popular, obviously, because they're biodegradable. But um, the phrase sort of morphed through the 1950s to mean a person who was unable to cope due to overwhelming stress or anxiety. But it's now come to mean an ineffective and unsustainable body, nation, business, so forth. Oh, my goodness. I've been using it in a kind of lighthearted way. But it's actually really tragic and actually quite offensive. Well, it is, especially considering plenty of double amputees are able to function yeah, and sustain an existence Absolutely. in society. So I, I think it's probably had its day as a phrase. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm very glad that you've enlightened me and I certainly shan't be referring to you as a one of them, even if you do have a lot of wicker work items. <laughs> yes, I think basket enthusiasts might be, <laughs> yeah, might be kinder. Okay, sure, yeah. <laughs> I thought for our second half of the episode, we could have a little look at the mentions of baskets and basketry in folktales. Yes, please. Well, there are a surprisingly high number of references. Sadly, I haven't yet been able to find any folktales about Sussex trugs, other than the charming legend of Thomas Smith and Queen Victoria. <laughs> so listeners, if you know any, please send them in. Yeah, I mean, he's a bit like... Cuthman of Stenning, isn't he? Walked a long way with something in a car. Yes. I mean, obviously for Cuthman, it was his mother. But, you know. I think for Thomas Smith, the drugs were like his children. Yeah, little (laughs) nailed together babies. Now, I can't say that I can immediately think of many folktales which feature baskets, other than, of course, Little Red Riding Hood, with her basket full of delicious baked goods for grandma. Are there many? There are. I will start with this Native American folktale, which originates from the Oregon-Idaho region. Sure. There was once a young woman who was incredibly lazy. Every day, instead of helping her elders, she just sat beneath the great cedar tree and watched the world go by. Eventually, even the cedar tree grew tired of her laziness and vowed to show her how to do something with her time. Watch, said the tree, and it showed her how to take its roots and coil them into circles to make a very simple basket, the very first basket. Very thoughtful tree. When she'd made it, the girl was amazed, but the cedar tree told her that the basket needed patterns. She was upset because she didn't know any patterns to weave into her basket, but the cedar tree told her to start walking and to keep her eyes, ears and heart open. So the girl travelled many miles all across the world and she saw and heard many things. The rattlesnake showed her its diamond-shaped scales, the mountains showed her the shape of triangles, and the salmon showed her the slits of its gills. When at last she'd learned to weave all these shapes and colours into her baskets, she returned to the village of her birth and taught all her friends and relatives how to weave the baskets, and she was no longer lazy at all. Well, that's very wholesome and like a creation myth for baskets. It's nice, isn't it? Basketry is actually a major feature of Native American folklore, as I discovered when perusing a wonderful book called Basket Tales of the Grandmothers. Basket Tales of Grandmothers. Which is this huge collection of ghost stories, fables, creation myths, and much more 
more, all tied together around the theme of American Indian basketry Whoa. with some beautiful photographs and illustrations. If you're interested in finding out more, it is readily available and very interesting. Cool. Moving back towards Europe, though, I found a mention of a Lithuanian folktale called The Gentleman Learns Basket Making. <laughs> but I've been unable to find a text or a source for it, so we'll, we'll have to imagine what that one entails. Oh, so it's just a title. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess, Eleanor, that it is about a gentleman who learns... How to waltz. <laughs> uh, maybe not. <laughs> In the German folktale King Thrushbeard, which is actually a not particularly nice tale about an overly proud princess being taught a lesson through a series of ordeals, oh. basket weaving features as one of the tasks the princess has to complete... Not necessarily the most feminist story, that one. Hey, could we count the biblical tale of Moses? Because I'm pretty sure a basket featured rather prominently in that one. We certainly could. In that story, uh, Jochebed is the biological mother of baby Moses, whose days are numbered due to a decree by Pharaoh that all baby Israelite boys shall be executed. So Jochebed weaves and waterproofs a special basket of rushes and floats baby Moses down the river into it, where he's discovered and brought up by none other than the Pharaoh's own daughter. Yeah, I mean, Moses star baskets are still very popular for babies today. I think I was put in one when I was a little Moses. Although I I mean, a baby. I don't think it's recommended you try floating your little one down any rivers in them. But it's also worth saying that, you know, that Moses story of being floated down the river in the basket, like, that is a recurring folktale that comes time and time again. Like in Oedipus Rex. Like, that's what happens to Oedipus, right? There's a basket. You know, the same kind of decree or, or oracle that the son is going to kill his father. So, you know, Oedipus is floated downstream and then raised in a neighbouring kingdom, then comes back. All unknowing, yes, his all, true heritage. All unknowing, kills his father, then marries his mother, then learns about it and pulls his eyes out. Hey! All no, the fault of the basket! Yeah, all the basket's fault. No. <laughs> but my point is that, you know, this idea of being floated downstream, like, it makes you wonder how many babies were just popped in a basket and floated downstream in ancient times. Yes, Probably best we don't have statistics for that. (laughs) Now, you shared a Chinese folktale on social media last week, which was all about a cat stealing a golden toothpick. I did. And a young woman being wrongly accused to hideous effect. There's actually a basket-centric version of that tale, which was um, retold and published as a children's book in 1885, and it's called The Basket of Flowers, A Tale for the Young. Oh, goodness, it's got a colon in it. Mm, It's the rather moralising story of Mary, an innocent young girl who's an extremely talented basket weaver, who's wrongly tossed in prison and subject to social humiliation after the loss of a diamond ring is blamed on her. Sure. Now, this story is actually based on the slightly less baskety folk tale in which a magpie steals the ring. But the basket of flowers replaces the magpie with an opportunistic lady's maid called Juliet who helps herself and blames Mary. However, there's much description of the beauty of Mary's basket weaving (laughs) and obviously her patience and virtue as well. Yeah, now that subset of tales with animals stealing things and it being blamed on hapless young women, it's also like really dark but keeps on happening again and again and again just like the basket downstream perhaps you might for a bit of a change enjoy the story of the pear girl instead which originates in italy i'm hoping this isn't a girl that's transformed into a pear and then eaten because that again would be really really dark no don't worry she doesn't get to cannibalize (laughs) (laughs) once upon a time there was a king who charged his tenants rent in the form of whatever trade they practiced 
There was a man who was a pear farmer, but one year he had a bit of a bad harvest. And instead of the usual four baskets of pears he sent to the king, he could only fill three and a half Uh-oh, baskets with yeah. his pears. So he popped his youngest daughter into the fourth basket <laughs> to fill it up and then covered the top over with pears Ooh. so they all looked the same. <laughs> but unfortunately, while the girl was in the basket, she got so hungry that she had to eat some of the pears. <laughs> and when she'd eaten her way to daylight, she was discovered. They didn't eat her, but they gave her a job in the castle as a servant. I was going to say, I had a horrible feeling that, you know, the basket would be set down next to the throne and the king would just reach down and gobble pear after pear after pear until he ate the baby. Look, oh, she wasn't a baby. Oh. Um, no, she's... Um, oh, she's a grown woman. <laughs> she's, um, you know, a nubile young maiden, oh, as dear. usual. Um, How big was this basket of pears? Well, very big. That's <laughs> the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and so she, she gets this job as a servant, but she's obviously stunningly beautiful. Uh-huh. And the king's son, of course, notices Pear Girl. Her name's Perina in oh, some versions, it? genuinely. Well, if you eat lots of pears, it's likely to be good for you, isn't it? Good for the skin. <laughs> yeah, I don't exactly. Know. Keeps you regular. <laughs> 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 anyway, the king's son fell in love with Perina sure. uh, and her luscious fruit-like complexion. Sure. But all the other servants were jealous because the king's son had never noticed them and they hadn't arrived in baskets well, either. Yeah, but they had, hadn't eaten any pears. That's their problem. Well, so they lied to the king and told him that the pear girl had boasted she could steal the treasure belonging to a fearsome local witch. Oh. So the king then insisted that she had to go and do it. And so she goes off on a quest to recover the treasure, which results in her winning, defeating the witch, bringing the treasure back and marrying the prince. Has this got anything to do with her, you know, powers of vitamin C or Well, she, as part of the, the journey, it takes her three days and nights and each night she sleeps in a different fruit tree. Oh, does she? Yeah. And so the first one's an apple tree, then it's a peach tree and last is a pear tree. And in the morning when she wakes up, there's a different little old woman standing under each tree yeah. who gives her something that's going to be useful in defeating the witch. I see. And then we have actually very similar to your story of Cupid and Psyche, like trials with the grains and the fish and the fearsome dog and greasing the hinges of the door. All your classic fairy tale style trials. I've got to say though, it sounds a little bit like this was a fairy tale that was agreed by a committee of fruit growers. (laughs) You know, all these men who owned orchards were like, we need people eating more fruit, guys. (laughs) And I've got a great idea for it. This was some sort of collective marketing endeavor. Yeah, that's right. I love that. If if everyone believes Perina succeeds through eating all the fruit, do you know what all the other little girls will do? They'll all eat fruit. They'll all eat the fruit. Exactly, (laughs) Charles. Exactly. Alas, there's no further mention of baskets in the story, so a little bit of a loose one. But there is a nice parallel in some versions of the tale, which has the prince then hiding himself in the castle coal chest and telling the girl to ask the king for the coal chest as her reward. Oh, and I see. And when it's brought up, she opens it up and he's in there and, you know, she has to have him as well. It does a bit of a reversal. Yeah, nice. exactly. <laughs> I do think that's a slightly tenuous connection to the noble art of basketry, Eleanor. I mean, it's a good folktale. Yeah. Uh, I may have been reaching a little bit, but there were undeniably some rather large baskets. Yes, I mean, there were baskets. And large ones. (laughs) All right, Eleanor. So let's say I want to get involved in basket or indeed trug making today. I could just have a go at home, look at YouTube, I suppose. But I mean, 
Is there an official way that I should go about it? Well, you can absolutely learn to make a basket. There are a number of short courses available, but there are also rather more serious professional pathways supported by, of course, the Worshipful Company of Basket Makers. Of course. And also by the Basket Makers Association, which is the leading organisation for basketry and its related crafts in the UK. I always feel like if you're going to set up an organisation, you should try and look for a different set of like initials or a shortened version to another company because if you say yes i work for the ba yeah people are going to assume you're involved in aviation that's right british airways no 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 no. the basket makers association (laughs) but also that's like a bad confusion to have like oh gosh yes imagine if you booked a motivational speaker for the basket makers association and they turned out to be a pilot absolutely that would be awkward indeed you asked a really nice like wicker weaver to fly an aircraft like disaster yes probably best not to abbreviate in these instances Mm -hmm. luckily they do offer bursaries for skills development in the field and longer development programs so you could definitely begin your basket making journey and add your name to the now 248 basket makers in the uk that is so cool 248 basket makers Mm -hmm. in the uk and what about trug makers well we could certainly go and visit thomas smith as they're just up the road from us really yeah not thomas smith himself no not he himself (laughs) and actually the company only recently is no longer run by a Smith descendant. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's it's passed to colleagues, but it's still very much a family business. Sure. Um, and they do run short courses, but I was reading about these and they very strictly state that students must understand that attending a two-day course will not make you a qualified truck maker. No, no. As it takes at least a year of full-time work for an apprentice to be able to make all eight sizes of the standard garden truck and a further year to become proficient in making the different shapes of truck, which include flour, fireside log, square, bowl, cucumber, oblong and walking stick. Walking stick? Yeah, I couldn't find a picture of that one. Wow. It sounds very intriguing. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Still two years is a long if you make all make those, trugs. you can become a craftsman trug maker, but it takes at least six years more to become a master trug maker. Wow. I would never have guessed that it would be that difficult well, to become a trug maker. if we get started now, we might be master trug makers by the time we're 50. Oof, well, I suppose so. I, I guess we'd better crack on then. Thank you so much, Eleanor. And listener... Perhaps you're a traditional basket weaver or you've tried your hand at some other willow crafts or, like Eleanor, you just like to take a beautiful basket with you when you go to the shops. We want to hear from you. How do you feel about baskets? Yes, please get in touch with us on social media via facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast and X at Three Ravens Pod. Or you can, of course, email us at Three Ravens Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, that's also the place to send us those entries to our thousand word folky flash fiction competition. Get them to us by the end of series three and we'll pick our favourites to read in a special episode. So what can we look forward to in our Something Wicked episode next week, Martin? Well, we'll be taking a trip to the gory and gruesome world of Gilles de Ray. I will certainly look forward to that. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, if exclusive content is what you fancy, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for only $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three Ravens podcast. Yes, please. We have lots of fun things, including ad-free episodes, text versions of the stories, special Patreon exclusive episodes, including Three Ravens Film Club, and our monthly newsletter with spells, tarot spreads, folk customs, and more. If you're enjoying the podcast and have time to write us a quick review on iTunes, iTunes or Apple Podcasts as well. We'd really, really appreciate it. And if you're a social media raven, come and join us on the Three Ravens podcast group on Facebook. Until next time then, while our baskets of pears have been carried off that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods.
Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such leemen With a down, derry, 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 down, down Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.